Thank you for tuning in to another episode of Highly Functional. This is Brianne Showman, and I am joined today by physical therapist and researcher, Chris Napier. Chris and I had a great conversation around his work in looking at biomechanics and training load and how that plays into running injuries and ultimately creating more resilient runners to decrease risk of injury. He's starting to do a lot of research as well around wearable technology and how this can help us out as runners. Whether you are a clinician, a coach, or an athlete, I think you can find this information that he shares highly valuable. So let's tune in. Chris, thank you for joining me today. How are you? I'm doing very well, thank you. Thanks for having me. You are quite welcome. I'm excited to get you on here. You have done a lot of research into um, biomechanics and training load and how all of this can affect injuries or decreasing our risk of injuries, essentially. And so um, I'm just excited to get you on here and share what you know, what you've discovered with your research, and just so we can help keep as many runners as we can injury-free or as much as we can injury-free. Yeah, that's always the uh, the tricky part, isn't it? <laughs> Definitely. We can't prevent everything, but we can decrease a lot of things. So let's just kind of, let's talk about you first. Um, what's your background? How did you get into um, the research that you that you have? Sure. Um, well, so I'm a physiotherapist um, and uh, I graduated uh, oof, about 16 years ago now in 2003 um, and worked clinically right from the start um, and, uh, and sort of quickly sort of fell into sport physiotherapy um, and worked with a number of teams, uh, soccer, basketball, uh, got into uh, ski racing as well and traveled with the Canadian Alpine ski team and ski cross team for a number of years. Um, but all along my, my, passion was very much running and that's the the sport that I come from myself so um, I was a, a 800 meter runner in high school and university um, and then when I sort of got back into running um, after uh, physiotherapy and after my sort of middle distance track career uh, had run its course um, I took a shot at the marathon thinking that would be sort of a, a one-time thing and then here I am uh, eight or nine marathons deep now. And, um, and, you know, I think training for the marathon, um, really changed my focus, um, with running. I, I think, uh, really looking at all the little things that add up, um, to improve performance and to prevent injury, um, really got me interested in, in some of those variables that, uh, that contribute to those factors. And at the time, uh, I was looking at, at doing uh, a PhD. I'd always wanted to do a PhD and get involved in research. Um, I was just too busy having fun traveling with teams early on in my career. And I really wanted to be passionate about something before I um, delved into it that deeply. Um, so everything sort of aligned and uh, I started my PhD in 2013. And uh, I was looking at that time, I wanted to look into biomechanical variables that contribute to running injury. And so my PhD focused on uh, female recreational runners. I wanted to, to target that group um, because it's an emerging group um, and uh, it's, it's the largest group of, of runners um, now. And, and I think 
uh, it's also a, a group where we can make a big difference, um, especially the, the novice recreational runners. What I found was in, in my group, there was uh, runners who, who had higher peak breaking forces um, tended to get uh, injured more. They had a higher risk for injury. Um, and so then we followed up with a, a gait retraining study to see if we could uh, reduce those, um, those uh, peak breaking forces. And we wanted to know what people did to, uh, to reduce those. So we, we looked at um, other variables such as step length, uh, cadence, uh, vertical oscillation, that sort of thing. Um, and so that was my PhD. And uh, that was a lot of work. We had a lot of participants come through the lab. Um, I, I really had no idea what I was getting into when I started it. <laughs> <laughs> and, you know, being a clinician, I had big questions that I wanted answered. So I, I you know, didn't care how, how much work it was going to be. But I ended up, uh, yeah, going through that and not really wanting to see the inside of a biomechanics lab again after. Uh, <laughs> so that really got me interested in wearable technology and, and uh, being able to measure some of these variables outside the lab. Um, that and, and the fact that I realized um, the limitations of the lab um, during my PhD, and, and that is just that uh, it's not necessarily a natural environment for a lot of runners, and it's a snapshot um, as opposed to being able to monitor their mechanics longitudinally. Um, so I'm now doing my postdoc uh, at Simon Fraser University. My, my PhD was at uh, University of British Columbia. Um, and I'm working uh, with Dr. Carlo Menon, who's uh, an engineer who develops wearable technology. And um, it's a lot of fun. We're developing all kinds of uh, wearable uh, systems that um, can measure different aspects of, of running and other, uh, other sports, physical activities as well. Um, and my interest is sort of heading down the road of uh, training load and ways to um, fuse traditional metrics of training load like volume and intensity with uh, biomechanical variables uh, to get a more accurate representation of the, the toll that training takes on your body and, and what that does to um, affect your injury risk. Okay, awesome. Let's kind of dive into the peak braking forces first. Um, what's, what exactly does peak braking forces mean when we're talking about runners? So, when you hit the ground, when you're running, uh, when you hit the ground with every step, um, you experience the, the ground hitting back into you. So uh, that's the ground reaction force. And the direction of that force is from the center of pressure, so the, the point um, at which you uh, are in contact with the ground, um, and angled towards your center of mass, which is sort of just behind your belly button. Um, so if you run with uh, your foot further out in front of you, um, the angle of that ground reaction force changes. And so if we're looking at just the sagittal plane, um, we're, we're looking at the, the vertical ground reaction force and the anterior-posterior ground reaction force. So in the first half of your stride, um, you're actually experiencing a, a braking force um, as your foot comes back underneath your center of mass. And then it turns into a propulsion force um, as you push off and push yourself forwards. Um, so the peak breaking force typically occurs in that first 25% of uh, stance. Um, and that was, that was the main uh, variable we were looking at. And the reason we were looking at it was because we wanted to 
um, see if overstriding um, was an injury risk factor. That makes sense. Um, I guess with your research, did you find that it was the risk factor? Because I know we talk about, you know, we, we hear a lot about overstriding and we should actually land up with our foot underneath us, but what's the research actually showing with that? Yeah, well, the, the problem is um, there's not a, one problem is that we don't necessarily agree on how to measure that. Um, probably the, the way that makes the most sense is to take the horizontal distance from your, your heel or center of pressure um, in your foot uh, to the center of mass. So essentially um, that, that distance that you're landing in front of your center of mass. Um, and, you know, there has been some research that's shown uh, greater breaking forces with that. Um, my research didn't actually show uh, that to be correlated with higher um, breaking forces as much as overall step length um, did. Uh, step length played a much greater role. So, um, but I think... Uh, you know, intuitively, we, we know that um, coaches have known and runners have known for a long time that you don't want to be um, overstriding, at least in, in distance running um, and, uh, and landing too far in front of you because you're, you're going to be getting more braking forces. And you do need to have some braking forces that's uh, necessary, um, but uh, you don't want to have um, – increased braking forces that um, essentially make you uh, less economical and potentially increase the, uh, the load in the body. That makes sense. Have you done any, have you looked into, or do you know if anyone has the difference between kind of how all that plays into us as runners on road versus trail? Um, I haven't looked into it, and and I think that's that's one thing that we're hoping to understand a bit better with with the wearable technology that we have. Um, we're still trying to find good enough uh, devices that can measure that um, to the degree that we would need to 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 see differences there. Um, I mean, there's certain technique. Uh, changes that happen between road and trail and, and certainly the more technical trails um, you'll see runners have a, a much higher cadence and a much shorter step length um, but then you also in trails typically experience more changes in uh, in gradients so you know uphill downhill which can um, you know have have an effect there too I think in general you're going to have more variability in those forces in uh, in trails as opposed to the road, which is going to be much more consistent. Um, as far as the actual magnitude of those forces, um, there is some interesting research that looks at um, running on different uh, surfaces and that your body actually adjusts um, its, its stiffness uh, when it encounters different surfaces. So if you're running on a harder surface um your body uh sort of the this if you consider your leg as a spring um the stiffness of that spring actually lessens when you're running on a harder surface and it it stiffens it increases when you're running on a softer surface and that's to maintain a bit of homeostasis but also just to um accommodate some of those those loads um that you experience oh, that's interesting it, it makes sense when you say it but it's something I hadn't really considered. Um, but as far as the, 
Yeah. The trail is def, def, is difficult to measure just because there is so much variation of your elevation changes and, and everything. So, um, I was just curious if the, if anything was known with that. Uh, diving into training load and biomechanical changes. I'm really curious on what, what you know about this so far. Um, just because obviously everyone's a little bit different, but you know, we know as muscles fatigue, that's puts us more risk of injury and things change with how the body's controlling itself. So what are we finding or what are you finding when it comes to training load and biomechanical changes? And are we at increased risk of injury as we increase our mileage? Yeah. So there's different ways to look at it. So there's, um, I think we do have to be a little bit careful comparing between individuals. Um, but obviously we do want to do that. We want to know who's higher risk and who's lower risk. Um, but when we do that, we're, we are comparing essentially apples and oranges because some people will have a, a greater capacity to, to, um, accommodate certain loads and others will not, others will be more fragile. Um, and that may be more of a like a load capacity problem than a, a biomechanical or a training load problem. But I think also, um, you know, if we're comparing within individuals, we want to know, um, I guess, what those those patterns are over time, um, whether fatigue changes things, um, either accumulating through a training cycle or um, accumulating through an individual run. Um, we did look at, uh, so in my current study, we're just wrapping up some, uh, our data collection, uh, right now for a six month study we did with some wearable, um, technology looking at, uh, uh, mainly looking at impact forces, um, on a per step basis. Um, and, and I did look at some data from, uh, we had about 16 runners, uh, complete the Vancouver marathon in the spring. And I looked at some of that data um, and, you know, typically what we'll see throughout, uh, like a marathon distance is, um, is some changes, um, in variability and we'll see changes in impact. And, and so because impact is tied to speed, um, what we'll see is actually decreased impact throughout the, the marathon as people slow down towards the end, but we'll also see changes in, in variability, uh, meaning, um, early on in the, the run, um, those runners actually had um, increased variability in a lot of the, the, the variables we looked at, whether it was impact, uh, foot strike, um, pronation, that sort of thing. Um, so between steps, there was more variation, whereas towards the end of the run, uh, there was much less variation um, between steps. Um, so every step tended to be much more similar. Um, and we think that probably contributes to injury risk, um, as, as the body fatigues. What do you think is causing it to, as a body fatigues for every step to be more similar versus variable? Um, it's a good question. Uh, you know, I think part of it might be, um, that the, the motion just becomes a little bit more automatic. Um, the, we know that like the, let me think about that again. Um, <laughs> it's not an easy question to answer. Um, and I, to, to be honest, I don't know. I mean, we're, we're sort of, uh, we're, we're trying to figure that out. Um, and I, I'm still new to the, uh, the research on um, variation and variability um, and 
the the role that fatigue plays on that but it's something we certainly noticed among all runners in that um in that group uh and across all variables i wonder if and this popped in my head when you said automatic if mental fatigue plays into that at all as well just that automatic point and just kind of getting into that consistent repetition at that point yeah i think for sure it does and and certainly that'll affect um reaction times as well um so that if you you know if you step on uh if you step it off a curb or into a, a pothole or something like that um that you're not expecting uh those reaction times are going to be increased as the as you fatigue um so you know i think maybe the the automation um might even be like a coping strategy at that point in the race um that it, it takes less energy yeah possibly are you controlling for shoe type at all? Um, we are taking it into account, but no, we're not controlling for it because um, we're actually looking at, uh, instead of looking at the ground reaction force, which is the force experienced at the shoe ground interface, we're actually looking at uh, impact and we're looking at accelerations. Um, and that's, we've got the, we actually have this, the sensors mounted on the shoes, but above the cushioning level of cushioning. So, um, we're hoping that that, uh, gives us a better sense of the impact that's actually felt on the body. And we actually just completed a validation study on, on this sensor we're using and a couple other sensors as well, um, to see what gives us the best, the best idea of those forces, um, at the musculoskeletal level. Is your hope with the research, especially with the wearables, to kind of get to the point that as runners, we can wear these and kind of help determine what our bodies are doing in order to train and adapt accordingly? Yeah, I mean, I think um, we're never going to be able to say uh, with certainty um, that, you know, you're going to get an injury your next run or on your next step. Um, but we can, we can perhaps show that, uh, your risk is increasing. Um, and so, you know, whether it's sort of a, an early warning system, um, you know, with a, a red flag or yellow flag, um, you know, to back off on your, your intensity or on your, um, your duration of your runs or, um, you know, perhaps uh, if it's impact related, we need to look at ways to to reduce your impact through increasing cadence, that sort of thing. So I think we can probably come up with some risk strata that we can then convey to the runner through, um, you know, an app or something like that. Uh, that hopefully um, at least provide education um, about, uh, you know, when you are at increased risk of energy of injury, and then you, you can modify your training accordingly, but we're never going to really be able to say um, with certainty that, you know, you will get injured if you keep going like this. Um, it just doesn't work that way. Yeah, definitely. With what you have found so far, um, what are kind of the biggest things when it comes to biomechanics or running technique that you're noticing are, contributing to these increased forces, essentially contributing to increased risk of injury? Well, clinically, uh, you know, I always go for the, the low hanging fruit um, and, and also the, the safest interventions. And, and I think cadence is probably right up there is sort of one of the, the safest and most effective interventions. Um, and, you know, typically 
uh, we've seen in, in a number of studies uh, recently and, and um, clinically, I see this that a, an increase of five to 10% in your cadence um, and then a corresponding uh, decrease of your step length by that amount, you know, really has very uh, little in the way of side effects um, and can actually, um, it can it can decrease a number of the variables or it can Im improve a number of the variables that um, we do know lead to injury or at least are associated with injury. So it's kind of like the the one I go to first usually. Now I'm not going to do that with someone who's got a, a cadence of a 190 probably. Um, so you do have to sort of put into a clinical context and, and look at the individual. But um, for most people I find uh, if their cadence is you know, certainly below 170 and, and sometimes in that sort of 170, 175 range. Um, it's an easy one to, to try and see if that's going to help them. It has the effect of reducing vertical oscillation uh, as well, which, um, you know, if you see a, a runner with a, a large bounce in their stride, um, that to me is always a bit of a flag that uh, they, they're not only running inefficiently because uh, they're expending a lot of energy going up and down, um, but they may also um, have increased uh, um, impact forces when they're running. So, you know, again, cadence is probably an easy one. Um, I've also found uh, step width to be something that I'll, I'll play around with clinically. Uh, if I see someone who has a very narrow or crossover gait, especially if it's um, associated with uh, patellofemoral femoral pain or IT pen pain, um, so I think those are the two biomechanical variables I go to most often. Um, you know, foot strike, I, I think, uh, is sometimes dangerous to change um, unless you are changing other variables around it. Um, so if, if someone is, is running with an overstride, for instance, and landing with a heavy rear foot, um, if we simply change them to uh, run on their forefoot, um, we're actually going to increase their, their risk of injury in that position. So we do need to make sure that if someone is changing to a four-foot strike, then we, we want to make sure that they're landing more underneath their center mass. We also need to understand that there's going to be greater forces on their calf and Achilles, and so we need to prepare those, um, those tissues for those stresses um, by, by strengthening them. Um, and then similarly for changing the footwear, I think um, we have to be very careful. If we just change someone... Um, you know, to more uh, minimalist shoes, for instance, um, but don't change anything about their um, their stride. I think they the the thinking is that the shoes will change your mechanics, um, and we do see that uh, often in the short term. But um, in the long term, people tend to go back to their uh, sort of more natural running uh, stride if if they haven't received other interventions. Have you found any differences when looking at the recreational runner between the runners who maybe run 5Ks, 10Ks compared to your marathoners compared to your ultra runners? Is there any significant similarities or differences between those different groups? Yeah, I mean, I think uh, even myself, when I um, sort of changed from being a, a more middle distance track runner to a, a marathoner, um, my my stride changed significantly sort of over that couple of years process. Um, I went from being uh, to a, having a longer stride length and a lower cadence, um, but a more forceful stride, um, you know, gaining more hip extension and, um, and uh, that sort of thing. 
to, you know, the, the typical marathon shuffle, which is a much um, shorter stride, higher cadence, um, less sort of extreme ranges of motion, um, but also much more economical. Um, and the reason for that is because, you know, over 800 meters, um, you want force production, right? You want, um, you want to be able to cover as much ground as possible in a short period of time. But um, in a marathon, it's not economical to, to run that way. Um, and you do need to really uh, conserve energy. And so I think uh, there's, there's certainly um, changes like that that will occur naturally. Um, I think they can also be coached as well, though. So if, if, uh, if I see a runner moving up to the marathon, I, I will certainly give them some, some pointers on that. And so I think the 5K, 10K is, is not uh, at the extreme of the 800 meters, but it is um, probably more towards that than, than the sort of typical marathon shuffle. And then ultra running is different altogether. Um, you know, if we're talking about ultra trail running, um, it's a very technical um, uh, gait. I mean, if they're having to... Um, you know, do cover a lot of downhill. Um, they really change it and, and often, um, you know, have uh, a higher cadence. Um, they'll have to be able to change direction quickly. Uh, they'll have to be able to um, land with uh, less stiff legs um, to accommodate uh, changing terrain, such as like you know, rocks and roots and that sort of thing. So um, it's a different beast altogether. Awesome. I guess with your research that you've done, um, with just the things that you know, anything that we haven't covered that you feel is really important for runners to understand when it comes to training load and biomechanics? Well, I think, um, the, so typically we classify injury risk into like three broad categories. And, um, this, this sort of comes out of a uh, paper by Alan Hurliak back in 2005 or so, I believe, um, where he categorized them into anatomical, biomechanical, or training error um, as sort of the three broad categories of risk. Um, and I think, you know, the anatomical um, at, at that time, I think, was more looking at things like um, you know, whether you have high arches or low arches um, or, you know, valgus knees or not. And um, I think a lot of the research since then has sort of shown that uh, it's, that's not very clear and that, um, you know, some higher arch runners have increased risk and some lower arch runners have increased risk and, and it's not um, as clear as that. And so the way I like to think of anatomical um, risk factors is, is more about um, things like your, your, your capacity for load. So, um, just your, your strength in general, um, or, uh, your resilience or genetic factors that, um, you know, your tissue makeup, that sort of thing that will allow, um, you know, some people will be able to handle large increases in, in training load and others won't. Um, so that's the way I could kind of think about that. Um, biomechanical we've sort of covered, um, and then, you know, training errors is really the, the majority. And I think we have to realize that we, we like to talk about biomechanical risk factors as being the, the be all and end all. And, um, I think, uh, certainly, you know, you can take two runners and, um, train them exactly the same way and, and one will get hurt and one won't. Um, so I think we, we do have to 
think about the the way people run um, and and realize that 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 does matter. Um, but I think we have a lot more control over the training uh, errors and training load. And I think that's why um, coaching works really well and uh, education uh, works really well as an intervention to prevent injuries. Um, so I think, uh, you know, for, for most runners, um, certainly ones just starting out, I, I always encourage them to try and get some sort of coaching advice, whether it's uh, joining up a running clinic or, or following um, some sort of program. Often I'll, I'll recommend specific programs rather than just sort of winging it on their own, because that, that is really a recipe for, for injury. Um, if you, if you don't know what you're doing and, and, uh, it can go sideways pretty quickly. <laughs> Definitely. When we're talking training errors, what sort of, uh, things are we talking about? So typically we're talking about too much too soon. Um, and so that is not just volume, uh, runners like to, to measure volume in, in, in terms of miles or kilometers that they run. Um, and so, you know, a, a runner will say, oh, I run you know, 50 miles a week, um, for instance. Um, but that's not a great measure of, of the load on the body because <clears throat> for someone who goes out and runs uh, 10 miles easy five days a week, that's a lot different than someone who's running 50 miles, but interspersing that with, um, for instance, a lot of downhill uh, running or um, with interval training um, where those intensities must uh, – are, are going to be a lot higher for sections of the, that volume. So when we talk about training load, it's usually a, a measure of external load, which can be volume or um, time, or sorry, can be distance or time, um, or could even be steps, which we get with a lot of the, the wearable tech out there now. Um, and then an internal load, which is going to be intensity based. And that can be either uh, heart rate or pace, or it can be, um, RPE and RPE is a really simple one. It's accessible and everyone can understand it and it changes with your fitness, which is nice. So you can, um, essentially, uh, follow the, the zero to 10 Borg, uh, session RPE scale, um, and, and rate every run, um, you know, with a score of 10 and then multiply that by your, your external load, uh, which I, I suggest using time for that. Um, and you get a, a training load score and that's something you can map over time. And that's a, a much better ind indicator than, um, volume alone. I really love using RP more than heart rate just because, you know, stress, sleep, all that stuff can affect how we actually feel when we're running, even though our heart rate can be the exact same on, you know, one day compared to the next. So I really think like just really dialing into how you actually feel and that perceived exertion can be so beneficial. Yeah, I totally agree. Um, and it's, it's easy. I mean, you can, you know, it's, it's subjective and, but over time it, it's, uh, it's reliable, um, within the individual. So, um, you know, even heart rate, um, you know, if you're doing an interval workout, um, you know, you may, you're going to have periods of rest in between where your heart rate's going down and then you're going to have, um, perhaps, um, you know, 30 second sprints, uh, where you've got, uh, your heart rate skyrocketing um and over you know overall at the end of that workout you may give it a score of you know six out of ten or seven out of ten 
Um, but if you just look at your average heart rate, it's not going to really show that. It's going to show a much lower value um, because it's also including all that that rest time. So I think it's it's easy for people to um, to do, and and you don't need any tools or anything for it either. Yeah, definitely. Well, awesome, Chris. Thank you so much for your time today. If someone wants to um, learn more about your research, just kind of find out what you're doing. Where can people find you or follow you? Yeah, the easiest place is probably on Twitter, uh, where my handle is at Runner Physio. Um, that's where I sort of interact and and um, and uh, I'll I'll put all my research up there. Um, you can also, if you're in the academic world, you can follow my profile on on ResearchGate. Um, and uh, just getting up a, a website up up uh, uh, shortly, but um, it's not up yet. So in the future, um, you can probably also find me at ubcrunclinic.ca um, for for more information. Awesome, um, great information that you shared with us today. I'm excited to see what your continued research shows because you've definitely made a lot of gains um, for the running community and what you've done so far. So um, it's gonna be really fun to see where these wearables can can take us for sure. Yeah, absolutely. Well, thanks for having me. You're welcome. And that concludes this week's episode of Highly Functional. If you enjoyed it and found the information helpful, I invite you to head over to Facebook and join my group, Obstacle Course Racing Athlete Health and Performance, where you can both join your OCR tribe, as well as find very helpful, useful information on how to become a more dominant racer, a more resilient racer, and truly race at your peak performance. And until next time, let's go out and be highly functional. <laughs>